Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 205, Conversation with a Frustrated Trinitarian, Part 2. Corby Amos is a Sunday school teacher, deacon, and occasionally a fill-in preacher at a Southern Baptist church in Virginia. A husband of 22-plus years, he also dabbles in guitar playing, and he blogs at a blog called Odd in the Truth. Some of us know him through Twitter, where he asks good and pressing questions of theologians and other scholars. Welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Dale. So last week we talked about your list of complaints about contemporary Trinitarian scholarship, particularly evangelical, because you're an evangelical and that's a lot of the things that you read. And I mean, evangelicals are producing a lot of good work right now in different kinds of uh, fields from theology to history. And I was wondering if we could just talk more about some of the conclusions that you've come to so far in your studies. One question I have is, do you think that Christians have always been Trinitarians ever since like the New Testament time? No, I, I don't. But of course, it depends on how one defines Trinitarian. So from a doctrinal standpoint, no. But if by Trinitarian you mean that the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit are needed for the gospel, then sure, everybody's a Trinitarian. Right, including me, the biblical yeah. Unitarian. <laughs> right. So, but if Trinitarian means believing in a triune God where there's three equally divine persons, each of whom has the divine nature, something like that, then you don't think that that goes all the way back? I don't think so. I mean, that's pretty clear when you read the early guys, Justin and Origen and all those guys. I mean, I think it's clear when you read the New Testament, too, because... You know, God, 99% of the time, means the Father. And there's a handful of passages where maybe the Son is called God. Some of those, as you know, depend on translation or interpretation. Mm -hmm. But let's say there's several to be generous. Yeah, I know what you're saying. If you gave the New Testament to a guy on an island who never read it and asked him what he found out about God, I don't think a triune God would probably be something he would see in there. Yeah, because you would think that they would use the term God for the three of them together, or at least that they would spread it around evenly or something like that to communicate that they were equally divine. Yeah. You've got a pattern that I, I think kind of fits my view well. What's that? Just the pattern that the word God is almost always the Father. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, that's because I think the Father is the one God. And if Jesus is called God, I'm not ever sure there are any instances of that, the more I think about it, actually. But, um, I mean, we know that the word can be used in a lower sense. You know, I said you are gods, John 10. Mm -hmm. Or maybe in Hebrews 1, your throne, O God, is forever. Right. If that's the right translation, then they would be calling the Son God. But then it says, God, your God has exalted you. So... There you have two uses of the term God right there, uh, the highest level, and then like there's a second tier right. that they can use. But we knew yeah. that from the Old Testament, you know. Right. It seems to me that, and Hurtado does a good job with this, is that I think you can get out of the New Testament that there is this incredibly close association between the Son and the Father and their relationship with each other, and that the Son is no ordinary Son. Mm-hmm. Even in, with certain interpretations of John 1, 1, C, what's going on there and the preexistence of the Son and other places, which I think you can get out of the, out of the New Testament. Um, I know there are Unitarians that believe that too, some of you. Mm -hmm. But I talked about the landscape in the last episode. I think there's a landscape in the New Testament that is awesome in the way it portrays the Father and the Son and the ways they're related and the uniqueness of Christ and the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit the way that the Son is talked about um, by the New Testament writers, the way he's seen through some of the lenses of the Old Testament that talks about Yahweh. I mean, there's so much rich, awesome stuff, right? So then it, it's there for the taking. You just dive into it. And then you look later, okay, what's the best explanation for this? How do we understand this? How do we process this? And then that's when you get into hundreds of years of debate about that, right? Okay, well, is the Christ 
from the Uzia? Is he from the will? Um, is he in the father? Is he, you know, this kind of stuff. Interestingly, the Holy Spirit's ignored for a long time <laughs> uh, in yeah. that process. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think there's a reason for that, which is they're just working on a Jewish model of God's spirit. You know, it's, it's just God's unseen aspect and his power that he gives. Mm-hmm. I know that's strongly personified in some of the language in John and in Acts, but on the other hand, you know, it comes down on people. Gets if it's a kind of rain or cloud coming down or something like that. A lot of the language fits an impersonal, you know, power kind of view, I think. Yeah, there's power, force. Um, I think there's some folks, and I, I agree with them, there's some good uh, cases to be made for some personal stuff going on there. Um, personal pronouns, that sort of thing. Well, yeah, like an accent says somewhere, uh, it seemed to us and to the Holy Spirit that you should do this. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wonder if that's just a euphemism for God, really. Like God in us. God. Uh, right. God speaking to us. I think like when, we, when you start picking at all these things, some don't, but I'm going to concede right off the bat that you're not going to find the Trinity in the Bible. But I do like this from Sanders. I will give him credit for this. There's a pressure in some of this language to go somewhere else. And, you know, whether or not A or B or C, you know, that's what you got to figure out. But it seems there, there's a, a pressure to go somewhere else with what's happening between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Back to that landscape I was talking about, the, all the features of, of how Christ relates to this um, Father and and the stuff that uh, Hurtado talks about, the five unique ways the sons worship and, and how God talk in the New Testament changed. And that was, there was no talk of talk of God without talk of Christ and just stuff like that. It doesn't mean the Trinity, right? But that's a lot of ingredients to a pretty cool story that might be saying more than we think it's saying. That's all. So then throw down your case and let's hear it, you know? Right. Yeah. But to me, that's the thing that's just not done. Particularly apologists, they're stuck on the notion that you can just wham, bam, proof text the Trinity from, you know, five different verses. And I mean, that's not how you do theology. You have to consider the whole and consider the things that are said and the things that are not said and look at the pattern of language and the assumptions that are reflected, not just the things that are explicitly asserted. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's all what led me in the direction that I went theologically is those kinds of things. Well, I started analyzing some of the arguments and, and seeing them as problematic, too. Like, you know, Jesus forgives sins, so he must be God. Jesus does miracles, so he must be God. Jesus raised from the dead, so he must be God. And You know, that's not the New Testament explanation for those things. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, gotcha. Like forgiving sins, you know, Jesus says, so that you know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he heals the guy. But then the Son of Man has been given that authority by God. So that's what the writer thinks. The writer's not winking and saying, see, he's God because he's forgiving sins. He's not up to that. We're just jumping off from what the writer's doing when we go that direction. I guess a Trinitarian would say, yeah, that could be a good reading, but it might not be one that's mutually exclusive or something with or go alongside with another reading. Who knows about that? Personally, it helps to just concede points and then just deal with them on their face. Okay, so let's say it's not just God that can forgive sins. All right, no problem. Well, that can't be part of why I believe in the Trinity then. Right. You know, just let, let's just grant that. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on and and talk about something else. Maybe there are other arguments. Just because one argument doesn't work doesn't mean the other ones don't work. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, just concede a point. And and that's what I mean by, you know, digging in and getting critically engaging with each other. And it'll help everybody if, if people would do that. That forgiveness of sins thing. Another big one, which I, I mean, I'll, I think there's a lot to this. Um, I don't know if I'd use Balcom's language of divine identity, but uh, Heiser talks about that um, the God is one language doesn't necessarily mean numerically one, but that it means unique and completely unlike. And 
Jesus is definitely identified with that uniqueness. You know, I think I'd put it like that. That identification could be as a divine agent. You know, he's been granted that authority and given that mission or maybe something more. But it's there. There's there's definitely this connection. Yeah. So when you say identification, you mean that the two are being closely and strongly associated together. Exactly. That's what I mean. And I just talk about as you he's identified with the uniqueness of Yahweh. Yahweh does things that no other God can do. And Jesus is associated with those things. He does those things. He's stuff like that. So take a young scholar, I think his name is Daniel Johansson. He did his PhD under Larry Hurtado. His whole dissertation is on the Gospel of Mark and how it does that, how it identifies Christ with certain aspects of Yahweh. That's really good. It's a scholarly dealing, a, a thorough dealing with how this plays out. All the cards are on the table. How do we explain all this stuff? His answer is going to be, I think an explanation would be some type of Trinitarian doctrine. Okay, great. So let's see what that does that maybe your view can't do. And yeah. I haven't read this book, uh, but I'm familiar with the genre. I mean, it's in the High Christology Club. And um, yeah, there's a vague hope that this sort of uh, supports traditional Trinitarian views. You can find it online. It's just his dissertation. But I think he's he's just filling in all the lay of the land with what Mark's dealing with. Now you got to interpret what it means. This is a sore spot you're putting your finger on here for me. Oh, for you? Oh, that, that whole I... The fulfillment Jesus. fallacy oh, yeah, is what yeah, I yeah. call it. Let me give you my rant, and then you can and you can give me your your. Uh, yeah. You could tell me what you think, what you disagree with. When I read Mark, I find that it is a very plain, beautiful book. It's written at a level for a seventh grader, or maybe a fifth grader. I don't know. It's very straightforward. He tells you right at the very beginning. It's about Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, and that's what he's announced as. And I mean, the subject of the book is Jesus and Jesus's ministry and who Jesus is, and his uniqueness. And the high point of the book to me is, who do you say I am when he confronts the disciples and they say, we think you are the Messiah, the Son of God. That's like the signpost. And then at the end of the book, he has the centurion say, truly this man was the Son of God. And so that's the hostile, unwilling testimony even of the pagan the whole point of the book is just purely on its face is that he's the Messiah, which is by definition, a human agent sent by God on the special mission. In that sense, the son of God, the son, not just a son, like you and I might be sons. Mm-hmm. Okay. So these guys come along, they notice certain very general ideas, which are associated with God in the old Testament. And they're like, see, He's trying to say that Jesus is God or that Jesus is is divine. The one that makes me the craziest is in chapter one. The author quotes, I think it's two different parts of Isaiah. It's about John the Baptist, make straight the path for the Lord. And obviously the Lord is Yahweh in the Old Testament. Uh, Yeah, Um, Kyrios in the Septuagint, yeah. Right, which makes it easier to say that it's fulfilled in Jesus, who's Kyrios Christos in the New Testament. And so, like, see right there, deity of Christ. Christ is Yahweh coming in human form. And I just say, no, like, Yahweh is God, the one called Father in this book. He thinks the text is being reapplied. Yeah. Or else he thinks that it was, had this ambiguity built in so that we could just see this fulfillment. Right. And, uh, the walking on the water. I mean, look, that's just, that's an astounding miracle, but. That's not how you show your God. So to me, they're reading it like it's an encoded, esoteric text, and you have to have the secret insight, which is only <laughs> told by the insiders. If you have this little secret bit of Gnostic uh, wisdom, then you can untangle the true message, which is distinct from the surface message. That's why it's an esoteric book. It's like secret mark, not the secret mark that was an issue in biblical uh, textual studies, but it's like there's Mark and then there's like secret Mark, which is what the guy's really saying, but he's always hinting constantly. 
I just deny that there is any hinting. Like, I just think it's a very straightforward book. That's my rant. That's fine. I'm glad I could hear it. <laughs> Certainly, as a Trinitarian, which I am, I give it more credence than that. I don't see a secret, Mark. I see obvious Old Testament connections made to help explain what they're experiencing in Christ. I don't think it's a level. I think that's just what they, they do constantly, whether it's Jesus or any other connection they're making. But if the real message is really there in the book, like these scholars are saying, if it's really there, then what the author's doing is very strange because that Jesus is the Messiah that's a very important thing, but it kind of pales in comparison to Jesus as God in human form. Do you see how strange that is? Like, the most important thing he's not saying at all, the thing that's kind of more important, right. he's not saying that at all. But this other much less important thing, he's holding up like a big sign and like repeating all the time. Well, the question, and I just ask questions, right? Because then I got to go dig in and find out. One question I have about that. Mark's making these obvious, to me anyway, connections to the Old Testament with Jesus, with Yahweh. It's prophecy fulfillment. Right. And so if Jesus were only just the Messiah, the man, why make so many connections? Were those connections necessary? Especially when the Messiah that they were thought they were connecting to wasn't what they got. I just scratched my head. Because if you were... I'm just thinking out loud. If he were just a man, a king, well, he didn't do anything that they thought this man king would do. If they wrote the gospel, he wrote the gospel and made these connections. Seems to me he was not helping his case by connecting Christ so strongly to to Yahweh when he wasn't even didn't even turn out to be what most Jews thought the Messiah would be. It's well, like, okay, so why am I making these connections? Because he's actually different than what we thought he was. He's, there's something else going on. I don't know. I'm just spitballing. Well, I mean, we have to keep in mind the sequence of events. You know, it's true that during Jesus's ministry, people had expectations of the Messiah that he was never going to meet. And the disciples themselves were fairly confused about the nature of his ministry. You know, they thought he was going to take over and they wanted to sit his right and left hand. Well, he's going to take over, but not. he wasn't going to do it in the first century. But anyway, but I mean, by the time Mark is being written, we already have this surprising result of a crucified Messiah who's now gone, although he's gone and exalted. But I would make the point, though, that I don't have a count in front of me, but I think <laughs> most of the passages that, that the author says are fulfilled in Jesus. So I'm thinking of Psalm 110.1, maybe an oblique reference to Daniel 7, mm-hmm. other things like this, like doesn't he say in Mark, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a psalm there, Psalm 22. Yeah. Most of the references presuppose that he's distinguished from God and that he's somebody else. Psalm 110.1 would be the big example. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So it's Yahweh talking to the king, the Davidic king, the Messiah, And, you know, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, he's speaking in a voice like David, someone who's approaching God and uh, asking for God's help. I mean, most of the fulfillments are just cleanly, I think, assuming a distinction between Jesus and God. The exception is in the one that I mentioned at the beginning. But I just think Mm -hmm. it's a a second fulfillment. I know Matthew does this. I can't remember if, if Mark does, but... The reference to the prophecy, his name will be called Emmanuel, God is with us. If you look back in Isaiah, that was about a baby in Isaiah's time, and it was fulfilled back then. But the author believes that there is a second fulfillment in the Messiah. And so, some of them, I think, can be taken that way. There's a double fulfillment. They just think they have an inspired interpretation, maybe. But it's it's a very strange way to claim that somebody's God in this kind of roundabout, tricky manner, when it'd be just very easy to say it, you know. Oh, right, right. It's definitely a roundabout manner, for sure. But these interpretations, they strike me as kind of conspiracy theory reasoning, like... Listen, if you're a Trinitarian, it's not a roundabout manner. It's like, look, it's obvious. Christ is being identified with this uniqueness of Yahweh stuff. 
but earlier generations of Trinitarians were not making these Bauckham type type arguments. Like I can't find them in the Church Fathers. I look like I look in yeah. the index and I try to find Mark one and no, uh, it just goes right over their head. Where the another Bauckham argument and an NT Wright argument is that Paul, how do they put it, puts Jesus into the Shema in First Corinthians eight, and so they're yeah. they're claiming that Paul is rewriting fundamental Jewish theology there because there's many of the same words that are in the, and some in the same order that are in the Shema in the Septuagint. Right. And now it's being applied. Look, this is Unitarian's like favorite verse. To us, there is one God, the Father, and there's also one Lord. And the Father's from whom are all things, and the Son through whom are all things. So I look for ancient authors. You know, okay, so who thinks, you know, does Origen think that Paul is equating Jesus with God or saying that Jesus is fully divine because he's inserting him into the Shema? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's nothing as far as I can find. It's just, they're coming up with new material yeah. to kind of justify what they already hold. Yeah. They uh, did make that connection, though, that somehow Christ was from something of the Father in whatever way, uh, whatever school of thought they had, the Uzi or the Will or whatever. I don't know. It seems to me they had a stronger link between the Son and the Father than maybe a biblical Unitarian does. Is that right? I don't think so. Like, take John, the real issue between Jesus and his opponents is, is he really sent by God? And is God really working through him or not? Is he an imposter? Is he a false messiah? I was talking about the uh, Justin and the origin and all those guys. They all, oh, yeah. Well, they're down the two natures track. They're going that direction. In fact, I mean, I think origin has two Jesuses, really. He's got the Logos, this eternal person, and then he's got the pre-existent human soul of Jesus, and that's another person. And these two are like kind of amalgamated in the pre-existence. And then so there's really two guys there in, in the ministry of Jesus, which is, I think, a terrible view. But They have like divine stuff. Yeah. It's not Jesus if you mean the human soul or if you mean the combination, but the Logos, the Logos kind yeah. of emanates from God. So it's... It's got as much divinity as anything other than God could have. That's basically Origen's view. But it's, it's a firm second place, though, you know. He's very clear about that. He says this is why only the Father is called Hatheos, the God or God, whereas yeah, other beings can be called Theos, a God. Like it, preeminently, the Logos is, a, <laughs> is called God, but not the God. Right. Yeah, they do have a closer connection in the sense that they believe in a it's still a secondary but and lesser, but it's a divine nature that's in the man. And I just, I believe in the man and the divinity to me that's in there is God working through him by his spirit. You go with the kind of a divine agent view, right? Yeah, because I take it that this is the New Testament explanation for the power and the authority and mm -hmm. for him having this miraculously stupendous teaching you know, so in Luke 4, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Right. And uh, in John, yeah. he says, it's the father in me who does the works. So it's not oh. him or his other nature. It's just. Yeah, I think um, even Hurtado talks about a package, I guess, or a, a matrix that they understood. New Testament writers understood Jesus was, he concedes was probably through a divine agent lens because that had a history in old in the old testament that god would use divine agents men and yeah divine beings and they can speak for god and they they yeah. carry god's authority mm -hmm. right and then of course then he kind of trails off at the end of his thoughts that and how that developed into the trinity would be worked out later you know <laughs> and that goes back to that like those <sighs> questions i have okay yeah we got the bible we got that revelation we got the, the ways they identify the Son with the Father in these unique ways. And then we fast forward to 381. Okay, how do we get there? I want to know all the details about that. Somewhere in his writings, Hurtado complains that people ignore the uh, theologians of the 2nd and the 3rd centuries. Like they treat that like that's just an irrelevant warm-up and the real action is all in the 4th century. I think he's right. I think... People have badly neglected Tertullian, mm -hmm. Origen, Eusebius of Caesarea. Partly the, the sources are obscure in that period. We don't have as much action. 
So yeah, maybe so, yeah. People don't get as jazzed up about Novation. Probably not, yeah. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I bring up the issue of anachronism in exegesis. I'm glad you brought up Hurtado. I, w- I was going to make a comment about this last week, but it didn't quite come up. You were complaining about people bringing all of their heavy theological baggage and loading it onto the text. You're not comfortable with this. You complained about the language, but I think you, f- you feel that something is amiss about the exegesis as well, that the, the machinery might be getting in the way of dealing with right. what's actually there. And yep. um, I found something kind of paradoxical over many years. I've seen this constantly over and over, which is the scholars who load the most on, who are the most anachronistic and the most aggressive in their overreading these things, are usually the Protestants who care a lot about theology and apologetics. Mm. And the reason is they have to get all the answers out of the New Testament, really. That's what the ideology says. I'm a Protestant. All my views are based on the New Testament. So it is all in there. Samusia, three hypotheses, it's all really in there implicitly. Right. Okay, but then you read other scholars, and some of them, like Hurtado, they're Protestant, but they kind of prefer history to theology. Mm-hmm. And they kind of like to, in a sense, avoid a lot of those topics and arguments because they sense that it would, well, it might get them in trouble, number one, but they sense that it would distract from the historical understanding of, and the first century understanding of the New Testament texts. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. So some yeah. people that don't care as much about theology, they don't do that as much. They'll just give you the unvarnished contemporary view, or they'll try. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then Roman Catholic and Orthodox scholars, they might care a lot about doctrine, but they're in no hurry to get it all because they'll take at least the first seven ecumenical councils, if all, not all 21 Catholic councils, take uh, the first seven. They have until 787 to get all of the core doctrines they want. <laughs> so if you say, well, is the New Testament Trinitarian? Some Catholics will be like, oh, no, of course not. What are you talking about? That's, that's a later idea. Right. And you're like, have you told James White? <laughs> right, yeah. I don't see... This is me, obviously. It's going to be hard for me to be a Trinitarian without 381 and following. I don't see how you can do it. You can kind of be in no man's land, maybe, about your what the Bible clearly teaches about who Christ is, his identity to the Father, and, of course, the Spirit. And, you know, there's some really awesome stuff in there. But the doctrine of the Trinity, you're going to have to add— the ECs, the ecumenical councils that uh, deal with it. I don't see how you can get away from that. Do you know who Dr. Francis Beckwith is? Beckwith, yeah, I've heard of him. He's a, uh, isn't he a Catholic guy? He was raised Catholic, but he was yeah. evangelical, and, and he was a apologist and a scholar, philosopher who does mm, apologetics and philosophy of law and other things. And then he converted to Roman Catholicism while he was or had just been president of the Evangelical Theological Society. So okay. <laughs> it's kind of a big deal. And he's at Baylor, which is a, uh, he's one of many Catholic guys at this Baptist uh, right. university. He makes a comment in a couple of different places I've seen. He says things like, um, you know, sola scriptura, it's just not good enough to ensure Christian orthodoxy. Like you really can't just get the Trinity out of the Bible. I mean, how would you do that? And yeah, I mean, I think that's right. But how do you as a Protestant, though, reconcile yourself to this degree of development in theology? Well, that's what I'm trying to do, right? So, so okay, I have to come to terms with the fact that to embrace the doctrine of the Trinity, you got to dig into these creeds and 
And that's one of those problems we talked about last week. Who were these guys? What did they believe? What were they thinking? Did they have good arguments? Even the question, was there some type of uh, spirit-led driving behind this whole thing? Like you said, I think some people just assume all that stuff in the affirmative. Yeah, all that the spirit was leading them. The winners were definitely spirit chosen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were they were great exegetes. No, they weren't terribly influenced by Neoplatonism or borrowing from the Greeks. You know, no, we're we're safe. It's all good. It's we've sterilized it, so we're good to go. Some of their exegesis is really disturbing. You know, they'll quote that psalm that says, my heart has uttered a good word. Like, okay, so that's about eternal generation of the sun. You're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> yeah. And and then, of course, you know, um, I know from personal experience, something can be true, even though my way of coming to it as truth was wrong. <laughs> you know, that's always in the back of my mind, right? When I'm dealing with these guys, you have to, at some point, say, yeah. They got something right. It's just part of the equation, but I don't want to do that because someone else has told me to do it. I want to do it as I dig in and see what they were up to. You have thought through it a little bit. And so when I teach it or talk to the guys in my church about it, I can give them some meat. But again, without blowing through all the problems or alternatives that you keep raising, we should deal with those. We need to deal with those instead of just saying, Tuggy, you're wrong, man. When Mark identifies Christ with Yahweh, he is saying Christ is that. That's not going to help people like me in the church. It's not going to help folks trying to struggle to understand this doctrine and, and see if it's biblical. We want it to be biblical, right? But we're realizing that it's not just going to be biblical. And that's, like you said, that's tough to swallow for some of us. Well, there's two kinds of not biblical. I mean, there's not biblical, but consistent with what's in the Bible. And then there's not biblical and inconsistent with the Bible. I mean, I'm kind of curious about where you're at. I mean, are you a Trinitarian right now just because that's where you started and that's where most theologians are? It's still a default that hasn't been overturned in your mind. Is that kind of why? Or how would you make an argument for the Trinity from the Bible? I came up with a list of about... I don't know, eight or nine reasons why a couple months ago. But yeah, I don't know if I could argue. I think you can uh, put out some ingredients, some of the pieces of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. But you're going to have to take people into the fourth century to see how that played out. For me personally, that would be tough to do with other people because I'm still working through it myself. So you don't think that the New Testament obviously implies the Trinity, but you think it provides materials that when best understood, at least you hope, will be Trinitarian. The best understanding will be Trinitarian. Yeah, that's one reason why I'm a a Trinitarian. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There are others. Obviously, one reason has to do with Christ and salvation and forgiveness and all that stuff. Having gone through Romans, right, um, Paul teaches this idea of domain or, or realms, and one is under sin and one is under grace. And there's all humanity is their default position, their default address is under sin. And of course, he goes through that in depth. We talked about Colossians 1.13 last week. You know, through Christ, we're transferred into grace. We get a new address. One of the things that's stuck with me is that, okay, if Christ was just a man, his default address had to have been under sin. And I don't think a virgin birth would uh, solve that problem. And so, you know, that place under sin is, is that place into which we were sent after what I call garden exile, right? Thrown out of God's garden presence, blessing, and life. And so that's nothing that Christ would have had had he w- were just a man. He would have just been born into the under sin address outside of God's garden, uh, his presence, blessing, and life. And I'm like, okay. So he's just like us. What's, what could he do for us? Mm-hmm. God would have had to work out a deal with him that he didn't work out with us, maybe, or, or why couldn't he work it out with the rest of us? Or he would have had to change the rules maybe one time for this Messiah guy, or maybe he would have had to uh, give him a special touch. I don't know. 
But, of course, the easy solution, you know, I'm just thinking out loud, is that he wasn't born outside of God's presence because of the implications of the doctrine of the Trinity. So that's kind of something that sticks in my head, too. It's, it, I don't know if I could give that one up, Dale, that we could be joined to a man and find salvation, or the way the Eastern Orthodox guys put it, to be joined to a man and have theosis. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that one's a tough one for me. I mean, there's two different things I think you're raising. One is, you know, some of the ancient church fathers do speculate along these lines that you have to have a property to give it away. And so to divinize somebody, you have to be divine. And if Christ saves us and being saved is being divinized, then Christ must be divine because you have to have a property to give it away. And so this is a kind of metaphysical atonement theory, or they think that he deified humankind, like all humans collectively or human nature, like understood as a universal. They they say that Christ was united with humanity. You get this idea starting, I think, in Irenaeus that it was actually the incarnation where like the saving work occurred. It was in the uniting of, of the divine nature with humanity that like changed humanity or at least changed it potentially or something like that. Um, that idea that, that something happened at the incarnation, I just stonewall that. Like I just say there's nothing in the new Testament that even hints at that. The saving action is in his teaching his obedience, his death and resurrection, his exaltation, like that's the saving part. There's nothing about this thing, human nature being mystically combined with the logos, you know, at the moment of conception or something like that. So I just, I just think Irenaeus is wrong about that. But the other thing you said was, um, I mean, isn't he, so he didn't quite put it this way, but could I rephrase <laughs> it to say, sure. how could he, how could he not be a sinner if uh, at yeah, least well, have a, the effects of original sin or something like that. Well, I don't, I don't think Paul teaches original sin like Augustine does in Romans five. So I think it's a much more deeper problem than that. I really think it has to do with your realm or domain that you are by default in. I use address to make it easier. So it's, it's oh, I see. Yeah, like the creator creature distinction or something like that. Well, not even that necessarily because Adam, you know, in the story was created but not outside any of that so it's more fundamental i think or deeper than just was he not a sinner or not it's there was no christ for him to be in to redeem him if his default address was under sin and all the curses i use that word just that they go along with that we don't want to say that in principle any human has to be in sin or separated from god i mean if we believe in a historical adam then the story is that Adam and Eve were created, and at that time they were in fellowship with God and not in sin. Or even if you think that's not historical, um, just in principle, I mean, we know someday when in, in the fully come kingdom of God, we'll still be human, but we won't be under sin in that sense. We'll, we won't, there won't be any barrier between us and God. And you say, well, that's because of Christ's work. Well, sure, but if we hadn't sinned, presumably we could have been in that um, before. So how did Christ get the standing with God, in my view, to be able to be so close to God that he could be the mediator between God and man? Or I'd put it like this. How is it that Christ was not born at the wrong address, being a man? Well, okay, so part of what I'm saying is that address doesn't necessarily bring any corruption or separation from God with it. It's just it's being a creature, but it's being a creature isn't an inherently or an essentially bad thing. You know, it's just my take is that he's pretty clear that now it is. That's the the the, now it is the baggage. What? Now it is a, a it's an inherently problem. It's an inherent problem for a creature. It didn't have to be, but now it is. Is what I think he teaches pretty clearly. So that's what I was wondering. How do you think Christ did not inherit that, or how did he escape that? I don't believe in inherited guilt like Augustine teaches. I think that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's probably a bad word. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so my view is the New Testament seems to assume that Jesus had no sin in presenting him as a spotless lamb. And it does emphasize that he was literally tempted, and I think that implies that he could have sinned. 
but he's always portrayed as resisting temptation. So yeah. either there was no sin or if there was, it's not any of our business. But as far as we know, there was no sin. Jesus makes a comment in John somewhere that uh, God gives his son the spirit without measure. And uh, we know that it's not that to be human is necessarily to be in sin. And uh, it seems to me that God could just have uh, empowered him and protected him even when he was young so that he could remain without sin. And then, yeah. you know, the, the track record we actually have, he is presented as a hero of faithful obedience, even to the point of going through a horrible death. Right. I mean, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's his standing. I mean, he has that at the beginning. It's not that he earned it. I agree with Protestants who say you can't really earn salvation or earn forgiveness. I mean, I think the reward that he was given of exaltation right. is fitting given his obedience, but I'm not sure I would say he earned it. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Mr. Amos presses his case. Yeah, I got what you're saying. I guess my pushback would be like it's still not, and maybe I'm not explaining it well, it's it's still not dealing with what Paul teaches in Romans, which is the problem isn't just that there's sin, which is an action of disobedience. The problem for humankind is more fundamental than that. We're born at the wrong address. The master we serve is sin and death. So you can still be obedient at that address, but you're under condemnation, you're under death, you're under the curse of the law. The problem is not just the action, it's the default address that humanity's born at. So how did Christ escape being born at that default address, even before he had his first will, uh, well, act of the will? You know, I mean, that's, th because that would be a problem for me, mm -hmm. to, if you have to get him out of that address somehow. But the address is the human race, right? No, the the address is the is the the default position of of being under the the mastery and service of sin and death. The address is sin, living on Sin Avenue. It's okay. it is your it's your master. Whereas yeah. when you when you're in Christ, you're under grace yeah. and you're you're a slave to righteousness. But before that, you're under the curse of sin. The law kills you doesn't matter how good you are. You can be a great person, but you're at the wrong address. The law is going to kill you. You're, you serve sin. You serve death. That's what we're transferred out of. So yeah. if Christ was a human being, just a human being, right, then he was born at that address. I don't see how that guy can save me, I guess is, is my point. I mean, he didn't have to get out of that because he never was in it. Um, being a human doesn't put you in it automatically. You have to be, yeah, you have to be a sinner. Yeah, that's right. I guess we disagree because I don't think Paul teaches that. It's not the action that puts you at the address. It's the address that's the fundamental problem. I think that you're assuming some, something about atonement. And you, I think you think atonement requires that he's, quote, more than a man. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying uh, that's a whole separate issue. I'm just dealing with, with the issue Paul an issue that comes out of what Paul teaches about those two domains, those two realms. Look at it this way. The New Testament's unembarrassed about saying that he's a man and portraying him as a real man. And notice that they don't feel the need to say, oh, but let me, but don't get confused. He's not the sinner kind of man. It's, I think, assumed that in principle, a man can be in good standing with God and be free of any guilt or anything separating him from God. So... But, I mean, he isn't a normal person in that, uh, look where he came from. You know, he had no father, no human father, and he's, and he's given the spirit without measure. Right. Why can't a human who has the spirit without measure just simply avoid sin 
And so then he well, doesn't not, have a problem that he needs to get out of. Well, I'm not sure what the spirit without measure means, but to me it comes back to the, the address problem. Maybe I need to think about that more and flesh that out. Well, the address is a metaphor. I mean, it's it's good if you can cash it out in a non a non metaphorical yeah. um, formulation. You know, there's disagreement about Romans five twelve, but we die. I don't take the the original sin view of that. But why are we sin? Because we die. Why do we die? Because because we're born under the power of sin and death. So every human's born under the power of sin and death. Was the Messiah born? At that address, was he born under the power of sin and death? Did he just happen to defeat it because he had a good willpower combined with like the the Holy Spirit? Well, if that's the case, why did he need to do all that stuff? Why wouldn't just God give us this the Spirit without measure so that we could be obedient? You know what I mean? If obedience is only is that if, if that's the only issue, obedience. I think it's more fundamental than that. I think there is. Uh, that domain, that address problem. Let's just read a bit of it. New Revised Standard says, Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. You referenced a little farther down. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, And so death spread to all, because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If because of the one man's trespass death exercised dominion through that one, Much more surely will those who received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. The law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, the one man's act of righteousness, I mean, I think that's just the obedience of Christ unto death, right? Serving as the atoning sacrifice? Oh yeah, I mean... There's no question his obedience is part of the picture. Absolutely. And he says, yeah, I I skipped this part. I probably shouldn't have skipped it before. Um, While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Right? So he is godly, but he's dying for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more surely, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I think he's talking about uh, saved through the life, the life of the raised and exalted Son, working through the church through the spirit anyway yeah most of what you're going to say about that uh, i don't think anybody would have any problem agreeing to i think i'm still stuck on the like okay how was all that possible for this man to do how did he how was he able to avoid the baggage the curses that go with being born a human and of course you just think well being born human doesn't it doesn't necessarily follow you're going to be that way but i i think paul teaches it does if that's right, then Christ would have to have somehow 
been exempt or not been born at that address. And I don't know how that happens. And 614, it's just peppered to all out Romans. He says, for sin, he just contrasts these two dominions. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but grace. So this, there's this born under the law, born into grace. It just continually weaves its way through Paul. Now how the atonement works and all that is flows out of that, but there's an obedience and all that stuff. You know, I just can't escape that born under the law, born under grace. Okay, yeah, we're all born under the law. We're human beings. But if you ask how did how was it that this man avoided sin? I mean, that's just a theoretical question. I mean, the, the New Testament doesn't get into that, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think to me it explicitly says if you're a human being, you're born under the law. Well, under I mean, he was under the law. And, and, and its curses. He was under its curses in the sense that he was obligated by it as a Jew. It made things to be sins should he have done them that wouldn't have been sins if he had not been under law, hypothetically speaking. Right. If he had worked on the Sabbath, that would have been a sin. Yeah, he was under the law and under the curse of the law, and that's in that sense that it all applied to him and, and he was obligated to it because the first covenant was still in. Paul says if you're under the law and you sin, like that it multiplies the sin basically in different ways. Yeah. But he talks about under the law too as part of that dominion stuff, that it's a power. In other words, not just the technical aspect of the law and its hold on you, but as a, a power that is at odds with God's work and will, into which we're all born, pretty much what he says, I think. Um, so could Christ, I guess, could he have failed as a man? I guess he could have failed. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I take a crack at answering that difficult question. have to assume so because uh yeah. at least uh, well i mean there's failing and there's failing there's you know there's screwing up and then there's <laughs> ultimately failing right but i mean if you're tempted then i think that implies that you're able to give in but he doesn't give uh, in i don't know is that his main qualification that he didn't sin it doesn't matter if he doesn't sin if he's not called by god and predestined to be the messiah i mean yeah. Uh, you can't earn this or obligate God to give it, according to the New Testament. He was picked for it, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What, what would happen if he had sinned? I mean, I'm assuming that's a hypothetical and not a counterpossible, like that that's not an impossible hypothetical. I think that's yeah. just kind well, of presupposed, but. For me, that's a good question. You know, I got to think about that. Could a Trinitarian say that? Christ could have sinned, could have messed up. They generally say no, uh, that like he thought he thought he could have, but he really couldn't, this kind of yeah. thing. But it's not yeah, a normal temptation, but it's a different kind of temptation. Yeah, I don't think we can say that he could have. Yeah, that might cause some problems. I had to think about that. Well, if you assume the deity of Christ, full deity, I think, implies that you are unable to sin. And that's why it says God can't be tempted. It's just sin can never seem like a good idea to an all-powerful, all-knowing, yeah. all-good being. Sin will always seem stupid. Right. Unfortunately, me and you aren't that way. Sometimes sin seems like a great idea. Uh, so if you're fully divine, I mean, you just you have to say that you can't sin because I think it's incoherent to suppose that a fully divine being is tempted. So if you go at it from backwards angle, you have to say that, right? Yeah, that's what it sounds like, definitely. The New Testament just kind of unproblematically presents him triumphing over all these trials and temptations. And I mean, the background assumption seems to be that, you know, he aced it, but he didn't have to ace it. Although that was, uh, that was the plan, you know, that was... Right. God's yeah. intention, but I don't know. Maybe it's my um, evangelical 
bone in my body, but I don't, I think there's just a lot more going on than, than this dude aced the test. And that qualified him to. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot more going on than that. I mean, to say that yeah. sounds like an adoptionist thing. Like this guy was super good. Yeah. And, and he That's like, right. he yeah. stood out from the pack. And so God said, well, I'm going to make that guy the Messiah. Cause look how good he is. And yeah, no, I mean, I think he was, he was the son of God when he was miraculously conceived and he was always intended to do this and picked to do it. And if you say, well, what, what would have happened if he had sinned? I don't know. God would have forgave him. When Paul talks about, describes Christ as a second Adam, do you think that has to do with, like, here's a do-over and he aced the test? Or is it more fundamental, like, this is the dude that is fully part of my blessings, presence, and life in a way that Adam had access to before the what happened in the garden? And he means, let me show he you means the second happen. Adam because he's he's the firstborn from the dead. He's the founder of a new immortal, so to speak, a new immortal human race. So Adam's the progenitor of humankind generally, but Jesus is the progenitor of this new, improved, eternal life group. We just read a big passage. He loves to compare Jesus to Adam because I think he makes Jesus the the um, the agent of the new creation. Greater than Adam in that sense. Adam wasn't the agent of the old creation, but Jesus is the agent of the new creation, and he's like the founding, the founding member of it. I agree with you there, but I wonder if he's not making a deeper connection by, you know, calling him the second Adam. I don't know. It seems like there's something else going on there. You mean something divine? No, 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 no. Just the importance of connecting Christ to a state, a human condition that was unique to him. And by that, I mean, uh, like I've been saying, not born at the wrong address. Somehow that address under law and sin and death, but born into that thing that Adam had, but remarkably as a human. And so he's the second Adam, and he was, he's born into what Adam screwed up. How is it then a, that a man can be born into that, what Adam screwed up, that you know, Michael Heiser would talk about, you know, Adam actually had access to the divine council. Eden was on a mountain. That's all divine council imagery. How is it that Christ was born into that? That's pretty awesome. Well, I don't know, because it seems like Paul teaches that if you're a person, a human being person, that ain't going to happen. I don't know. I got to think about it more. That's the part right there. I suspect you're maybe reading it a little too much. I mean, if Paul wants know, to I mean, say that, he can say that, right? Well, I mean, I, I definitely think that there's the simple, not going back to the perspicuity thing from last week, but you can read the text and take something away from the text, but there's a lot going on in these passages under, underneath the surface. I would assume you definitely see that there's, just generally in Scripture, there's plenty going on underneath the surface. The genre matters, you know, because um, according to the New Testament, the prophetic books and even Moses and the Psalms are packed with this hidden extra meanings relating to the Messiah. But I don't think there's something like that in the New Testament. I think the New Testament's rather straight up. Yeah. Like what you see is what you get. Gotcha. But that yeah. sort of takes the fun out of it. <laughs> well, yeah, that would put a lot of people out of business. But <laughs> Well, we're just about out of time. Obviously, we're not going to fully agree, but you know, I uh, I really appreciate your uh, listening to the podcast and chiming in on Twitter, and I really think you're making a good example for people to follow. That you know, we should care about these things. We should care about getting them right. We should read scholarship, at least to the extent that we're able. We should assume it makes sense and try to figure out how it makes sense. Yes, not definitely. just go with the mystery thing right off the bat. Right. Okay, okay yep. if you get driven to that by the Bible, okay, fine, but don't right. jump too fast, you know. Yeah, and and listen, in that process that I've been doing that, you've been part of that. You've helped me to do that because you've challenged me. And I don't see you as, as anything other than a, a help to for me to dig into this stuff, definitely. So I think other people should see that, see you in the same way. Well, thanks. That's, that's encouraging. Appreciate it. Yeah, definitely.
Well, Corby, thanks for your time. Thanks for all the discussion. This has been great. I appreciate it, Dale. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, we'll see you on Twitter. All right, man. Thank you. This week's thinking music has been the track Everyone is So Alive by Loyalty Freak Music. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you could listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.